episode 391 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson, and we're recording remarkably on a Monday, first time in months. It's brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express do not reflect those of our children, our pets, our family, our institutions, our clients, and it really may not reflect our own views three weeks from today. Uh, today, I, there's a special treat, so stick around. I'm going to be interviewing Chris Hufnagel, who is the co-author of a book called Law and Policy for the Quantum Age. He did it uh, with Simpson Garfinkel, uh, who now works at DHS and whom I've known for many years. And it's a remarkably good book about quantum technology, introduction to it, introduction to its prospects, current state, and what technology policy issues that uh, it's likely to raise. So we're going to explore all of that after we finish the news roundup, which is also going to be fun. We've got Gus Hurwitz back. He's a professor of law, professor of law, uh, and the Menards director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center at the University of Nebraska. And of course, Nebraska is famous for now for giving us the Log4J disaster because uh, we've all seen the XKCD uh, cartoon, Gus, and so everybody's blaming Nebraska. Thank you, Stuart, and thank you, XKCD. <laughs> All right, we've got Jordan Schneider here, who's our China tech analyst uh, from the Rhodium Group and host of the really excellent China Talk podcast and newsletter. Jordan, good to have you. Nate Jones is here, formerly with the Justice Department and the National Security Council, uh, and also currently with Culprit Partners. Nate, great to have you. Thanks for having me, Stuart. Okay, and uh, Jamil Jaffer, founder and executive director of the National Security Institute and the hardest working uh, man in cyber law policy and my opponent in a previous conservative catfight over policy, which we may end up repeating here today. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host of today's program. Uh, Jamil, I didn't get to give you a chance to say anything. It, it, we're in the way in now. You got anything to say? I mean, if we're in the way and I got to give you the mad dog look, I guess, which means I got to say, listen, Stuart, when you're wrong, you're wrong. Yeah, and I ain't wrong, buddy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, so why don't we jump right into where we disagree? This is Senate 2992, the American Innovation and Choice Online Act that just got marked up, slightly changed passed out of committee with a bipartisan vote and seems to be splitting conservatives pretty dramatically. Gus, can you tell us basically what the uh, act does? Yeah, so splitting conservatives and Democrats, liberals, are pretty bipartisan. So if, if you remember last summer, there was this big uh, a group of bills introduced in the House led to, I think it was a 19-hour markup, pandemonium, crazy marathon session. Those bills are starting to work their way into the Senate, and the American Innovation and Choice Online Act is one of uh, those bills, along with the Open Apps Markets app and the Team Act and some other acts, bills that are now making their way into the Senate, but th this is the first one to get marked up and to possibly be on its way to the floor. This is one of the bills targeting big tech, basically, and it targets two sorts of conduct in particular, self-preferencing. 
So companies that uh, have their own products, uh, their own versions of products, preventing them from uh, sending or directing users to those products over others. So think Google Maps popping up in Google search results. Think Amazon Basics products showing up in uh, searches on Amazon. And it also has some interoperability mandates. So that's the main thing that it's trying to do, open up these big tech platforms so that others can interface with them more directly. Some big security concerns there. I'm sure Jamil will rake Stewart over the coals about and self-preferencing set of issues. And since I'm already talking and Stewart hasn't shut me up yet, I'll get to a really quick point about last week's hearing. It was a bizarre hearing for anyone who watched it. I think everyone in the room knew that it was going to be voted out at least 11-11 and under current Senate rules an 11-11 tie will get you uh, out of. And they were tired and just didn't want to argue about it. So there were a lot of courtesy votes for it just to get it to that the floor. So that 16-6 vote, I really view as closer to an 11-11 or 12-10 vote. And I personally don't think this ever gets calendared for floor debate. But with my card shown, Stuart, back to you. All right. I'm, I, I have to say, uh, you're right. The principal uh, element here is the self-preferencing discussion. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know how long it's going to be before we've just, you know, we've, we'll have to discuss self-preferencing for at least another year before I uh, stop wanting to make a Jeffrey Tubin joke. I, but I, the basic idea is if you run a platform oh. and, it's, and it's big enough, then you acquire a bunch of requirements not to... Uh, favor your own products either on the platform or adjacent to the platform. And to my mind, <clears throat> what's useful here is we all know that platform creating platforms is an enormously powerful and most of the time really good thing for competition and for the breakup of old uh, uh, structures that uh, are less efficient than the new kinds of competitive opportunities that you can create with a platform. But a platform always comes with the ability to engage in uh, self-dealing of one sort or another. And that's been true in the uh, tech business since Microsoft discovered it as a function of making the operating system available, which allowed them basically to watch for the applications and to decide which applications they wanted to be selling. And then just to crowd out the people who had pioneered those applications. And so we know that this is part of the structure of uh, platforms. They create e enormous opportunities. And then as the uh, platform gets more and more powerful, they destroy them as well. A and having seen that over and over again, it seems to me we ought to develop a regulatory approach that tries to prevent the damage that is done by the creation of massive anti-competitive opportunities especially, you know, and here I speak as a conservative, especially since these companies are using their uh, anti-competitive advantage uh, to work out their virtue signaling on conservatives that they don't like and to say, I don't have to allow you to use my platform. I will disadvantage you because I don't like your views. 
that that does color my view of why this makes some sense. You know, somebody who supports this legislation is, as they used to say, uh, uh, a conservative uh, or Chicago school uh, conservative who's been mugged by Silicon Valley. Uh, it tends to change your view about what the a good policy is. And I feel as though we're being mugged by Silicon Valley and it's not unfair to cut them down to size. Jamil? I mean, look, I think my friend Clon Kitchen said it best, which is you can be as angry as you want, uh, Stuart, at, at uh, big tech and, you know, all these people for oppressing conservatives and the like. And liberals have reasons to be upset with big tech, too, what they do to labor and the like. But you don't have to be suicidal. Right. And what, what you're what, what you propose and what's currently being proposed on the Hill. Right. Is a response to something that's not actually a problem. Right. So, look, we have laws today. It's called the Consumer Welfare Standard that have served us for decades to address exactly the kind of alleged anti-competitive behavior you're describing, self-preferencing, putting your, you know, putting yourself on the priority shelf, right? We literally have had case upon case after uh, going after retailers and product manufacturers, you know, manufacturers and you know, food developers who paid off people to, you know, prioritize things on the shelf at the market. That is no different than what we're talking about here. And so, if you've got a problem with the platforms. You've got antitrust laws you can use. Use those. The problem is today they haven't been able to succeed in those cases. So now the answer is, well, look, since we're not that successful in these cases, what we need to do is identify a subset of companies that we're already mad at, literally the top eight or nine firms in America. I mean, this bill is written so specifically. You might as well just list the name of firms that you're going to go after here because it literally is designed to carve out Everybody but these eight big companies, and by the way, when we talk about big tech, it also includes Walmart, which is kind of a weird firm to include on the list of big tech, right? But it's one of the concerns that Senator Cotton has, right, working feverishly to change the definition just so slightly, you know, to make sure that one company's in, not one, one company's out. I mean, that's literally what we're doing here, Stuart. So this is not some, you know, principled approach to antitrust or, hey, let's reinvigorate our laws. They don't work for the modern era. This is a let's pick the eight big players we don't like for various reasons, because you don't like them because they're mean to conservatives and liberals don't like because they're mean to labor. And we'll just go target them for special treatment under the law because they're just too big to be successful. We need to cut them down to size. Okay, I get it. But if your problem is self-preferencing, we have laws that address it. And if you think they don't work, then let's fix them for everybody in the ecosystem, not just the biggest eight players. But nobody wants to do that because it's popular to go after big tech. It's not popular to go after everybody else who's engaged in anti-competitive conduct if that's the real problem, which it isn't. So I, I, I think I, you've got some powerful arguments there. I do think that we ought to acknowledge that the construction of these platforms with their enormous reach is the creation of a power center, the like of what we haven't seen uh, in our economic structure before. It, it, it is, and... We feel it as consumers. To say there's no consumer welfare problem ignores, ignores the way in which these free products are extracting costs of other sorts, whether it's privacy so I, or... Uh, Stuart, I, I need to hop in on that okay. point because yep. if, if you look at consumers and what they're concerned about in the antitrust big tech, uh, big tech well, realm, and if you look at their views on products like Amazon Basics products and what's not... 
every survey shows a consumers are not concerned about this it's like one of the things they are least concerned about and that they like these products and they like the convenience of things like google maps popping up in their search results and amazon basics products popping up in their search results if there's a concern here as jamil said on the antitrust side we've got the tools and i'll just go a step further and say if what Amazon is doing or what these companies are doing is problematic, it's an IP issue, not an antitrust issue. So give the people creating these products that are potentially being ripped off tools to protect their inventions. Otherwise, where's the problem? By the way, as far as I can tell, Stuart, when you buy Amazon Basics, you're getting a, ch a product cheaper that's as good quality. Now, there have been some issues with Amazon Basics products, no doubt, you know, bursting into flames and the like. And that's being addressed. That's you know being dealt with in the consumer marketplace. But nobody's confused that Amazon owns the Amazon Basics product. Consumers aren't like, oh, surprise! This is some secret Amazon product that's hiding over here. It's called Amazon Basics. Google Maps called Google Maps. You can pick Apple Maps if you want to. You can pick some other map provider, right? In fact, Google Maps had to go out and buy the other map provider Waze because they were getting popular and they wanted to integrate that functionality in to utilize it. It's not like they killed Waze. They've integrated it in ways that actually make my driving terrible now because I'm going down some weird side streets because Waze is now integrated in Google Maps. But like, hey, consumers are winning as a result, not losing. I don't, I don't, I just don't get it. Yeah, I, I don't know. Look, I, I, Twitter took one of my favorite apps, bought the company, and it now charges you three bucks a month to to to, to use it. So, uh, oh my god, you mean like it was it was free before? Oh. It was free before. So I am definitely I am I am definitely I, I a consumer whose welfare has been harmed. But uh, that's my favorite. Uh, consumers who ate capitalism, Stuart Baker, you got the lead. All right. So fair enough that there are certain circumstances where you might say, ah, what the hell? It's all right. We're happy to have them do that. And they get defenses. But if you simply let them continue to acquire through network effects an ability to drive what we see, what we buy, what we are allowed to say, uh, I think we'll regret it. And so the idea of saying, nope, there, there needs to be a counterweight to the enormous power that they're acquiring, really not through, at the end of the day, through anything other than the fact that we all want to be in the place that they have occupied. And they gave away some stuff and they made some tools available. And now, but now they're riding free on the fact that everybody else is there and it's network effects. Uh, and it seems to me that if we've created those network effects, it's fair to say that is a, a phenomenon that our regulation ought to address directly. And we should limit it to the biggest companies precisely because we want people to start platforms. We just don't want them to continue to sit on them and exploit them forever. Okay. So I, there's a lot to say there. So let's just, let's just pick a few of those, a few of those just to deal with, right? So A, when you say we created these platforms, right? You mean private industry. It's not like a government I, I thing mean, where we, as, we gave we, them- the, the customers, right. we, we joined. Okay, so great. So it's not like this was a government granted monopoly where you might nope. say, well, the government gave you the monopoly in, you know, in telecom or in electric power where we need to unbundle you. This is a private, successful company that succeeded in gaining market share, not through anti-competitive conduct, but just by being the best platform out there. They may not be the best. They may not be the greatest, right? You may, they may have things you want to improve. You may want them more amenable to your thing, but they're there because they're successful, not because they did it through some exploitative conduct. So then the question becomes, okay, are they now exploiting that market power to bad end? And if they are, do we already have tools that are designed to address that? The answer to that is clearly yes. 
we've always had big companies get bigger and then try to exploit that in a way that's problematic. And that's how we cut them down to size. We have the antitrust laws. The question becomes, why pick the top eight companies? By the way, the eight companies that are most likely to be the most competitive against China, the ones that are going to develop our future defense industrial base, the ones that are going to develop our future technology and invest in that, have the R&D capability, frankly, to compete with the money and the theft that China's engaged in, right? We should just go after them specifically, not make general rules about for everybody, but let's pick our most successful companies. And by the way, what message does that send to small startups? You say, oh, we want people to develop platforms. But it says, hey, if you get really good and are successful, we'll artificially cut you down to size because you're just too big to succeed. So if, in fact, companies like Google uh, uh, said, yeah, we're part of the United States and we need to make sure that our, we're benefiting the United States and its uh, uh, political and diplomatic and military capabilities, I would be more persuaded. But they don't. They think they're, they're too good for the United States uh, and they don't have to have to do anything. You know, that's not an argument that's very persuasive, given the stance of Silicon Valley. Listen, I'm with you. I have been the biggest critic of Google when they dropped out of Maven, Apple when they didn't cooperate with the Justice Department on, on, on surveillance of terrorists. I am with you 100%. Again, you don't need to cut your nose off to spite your face. You don't need to go after our most productive industry because you're mad at them about conservative you know, messaging. You're mad at them about liberal labor unions. You're mad at them about, about not working on national security. Yes, they should have certain obligations. Being American companies, I'm with you 100%. We don't need to use antitrust laws to crush them for success unless they're using their market power in inappropriate ways. And if they so, are, so let, let, we, let me, I got a law for that. It's called the Sherman Antitrust Act. It's okay, so let me books. ask you about that. Sherman Antitrust Act, we know that the Ur platform, uh, the, the model for everybody uh, who's ab uh, abusing platforms, is Microsoft in the 90s. And they got sued, right? Antitrust case, pitiful outcome. Let's be honest. The outcome, the, the, the relief that was granted was at the margins. The only reason that that is viewed as an effective case is it scared Microsoft into thinking that, God, they hate me so much, they might sue me again. And so they pulled in their horns. They stopped pursuing control of adjacent markets. It was better for Microsoft in the long run. Uh, but show me an antitrust case that has worked against platforms. So I guess I'm confused because by your own admission, it worked. Microsoft do stopped doing the thing that everyone thought was anti-competitive. Well, on PR became... grounds, on PR grounds, not because they thought they were, not because they'd lost the case. Wait, hold on. On PR grounds that turned on, they might sue me again. Yes. Right? Like literally it, the threat of suit worked, right? The, the anti-competitive conduct we were concerned about has been addressed. And so the question only becomes, do we need to change the laws to address anti-competitive conduct? It worked before. It could work again. Oh, you're losing cases again. I see. So the rule in America now should be we have laws that apply. They work. But if they don't really get the result we want, we should change the law retroactively to punish you. And then, by the way, we think it won't have an effect on the innovation economy that has been created. I mean, like, look, the reason we have companies like Google and Facebook and Amazon here in the United States and they're not in Europe, which basically is what you're describing. Let's apply the European antitrust approach. Get too big. Let's apply it here. Right. The reason we don't have that here. It's because we haven't had that approach. The reason we have the most successful tech companies in the world and the reason we could compete with China 
is because we have laws that allow them to grow. Oh, yeah, right, because nobody, nobody in Silicon Valley would start a company if they knew they were only going to be worth $10 billion afterwards uh, oh, uh, instead of instead I didn't realize concerns were all about capping, capping success. I got it. Now we're back, we're back to the conservatives as communists. I get it. That's cool. We, you can only get so successful. <laughs> then we'll draw a line, and then we're going to stop you because – because you're so mean it's to us not, online. It's not. By it's way, not. It's not about success. It's about the fact that the that there is always an inherent tension in platforms between the abuses that are possible right. and the opportunities that it creates for people. And I think you can find a point at which the platform starts to become a problem, and it, it, it's in the neighborhood of 50 million monthly average users. I, that's what. It's, that's that's the joke, right? <laughs> I mean, this is literally that's the beauty, right, Stuart? You said it right there. Right. The answer is not, oh, anti-competitive conduct, right? The answer isn't, oh, you're using your market power unlawfully. There are laws about that. They've worked before. Instead, the rule now is number of daily active users, because that's really going to, that number is not going to change at all over time. It's good to, let's lock that into statute. That's the rule, because, you know, because, by the way, it, that would have been like num- tens of thousands of MySpace users 15 years ago. So maybe we should lock that into statute, too. I mean, like, <laughs> what, are, like what kind of a technologist or somebody who believes in innovation is like, hey, Let's write a law that's, that caps a certain number of, you know, should we do it based on a number of AOL subscribers? Like, what's the prodigy, number of prodigy boxes you put out on the, on the market? Well, I think we're, I mean, we're running out of I mean, monthly like, average users. Uh, I, you know, I think doesn't uh, Facebook have something like three or four billion uh, uh, users? Uh, I, we're not going to get to, tw- they're not going to get to 20 billion. I'm pretty confident. I think they're running out of well, opportunities. Maybe bots. Yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> And the Chinese are not going to let them get to uh, to to five million in China. Uh, so I I do think you're right that there's a risk here with respect to Chinese opportunities and and network effects, and that's why they uh, added some global measures to make sure that uh, we didn't just say, oh, okay, if, as long as your network is in China, you're okay. But I think uh, uh, all that said, I'm willing to adjust this based on giving people. Uh, um, a variety of affirmative defenses and trying to define uh, what kinds of abuses we're, we're worried about. Stuart, you of all people should know better than that, right? Literally what you've now did is created a, a litigation nightmare for companies. You've disincentivized innovation. You've empowered lawyers to make more money, right? And create more litigation risk. And oh, we got affirmative defenses, great. So you could sue us, spend, a, spend decades in discovery, right? extort me for millions of dollars to what end when i when you can't prove i've got I've engaged in historically anti-competitive conduct no that is not the american way it's not what's created the innovation economy we have today look if we're fine with destroying our innovation economy at a time we're about to compete with china hey this is a great plan let's pass five antitrust bills let's destroy american innovation let's china let's just let that china have it but if we want to compete with china going forward they got more people they're throwing money at the problem. They're stealing our technology. If our answer is let's kneecap our best companies, okay. This Have you fun, think this will kneecap them? About Come on. Why we... This is about stuff at the margin of their uh, of how they operate their platform effective monopoly. Jordan looks like he wants to jump in this conversation. Jordan, jump in. 
You know, it's it, it has been fascinating sitting here listening to you, a Stuart and Jamil, talk about this because the Chinese regulatory system is grappling with the exact same issues, and the answers that they're they're landing on are surprisingly, you know, within the bounds of actually what Stuart yeah, is saying. So, you know, the line the line for the the CAC, which uh, regulates data among other things in China, uh, apparently leaked a a new regulation saying that. Every company that had either 100 million users, which like is basically the same as, you know, 50 million times two for the population, right? Or over one and a half billion dollars of revenue had to pre-clear every investment, not only with SAMR, who's in charge of anti-monopoly regulation, but also the data, but also CIC, who, who's, whose remit is more data stuff. So first off, we're making sure that big platforms can't do a lot of investment. And then we had another big release by the NDRC last week, a you know new high-level guidance. And, and, and the, 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 the NDRC is China's development National Council? Development and Reform Commission, yeah. Um, it was alongside, it was a group, a publication alongside like 10 other bureaucracies making clear that, you know, on the one hand, there is this appreciation that platforms are important, but, and, you know, they're not going to be, like, destroyed and vaporized anytime soon because there are sort of major national strategic goals, which you can only achieve with large, big tech firms pushing you forward. But at the same time, you know, it was really, a, it was a very clear message that if they aren't developing in the, you know, directions which the Chinese government has said are the strategic priorities for the next five years, they're not going to be treated particularly well. Okay, now, so that, now, last point, not only is, am I a bad really conservative, I'm actually a communist sympathizer. I, <laughs> I, 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 even better. Communist sympathizer, that, Stuart, how does that feel? <laughs> it, it's, it's even better. Not only is it conservatives as communists here, the CAC in China, communists as conservatives. Hey, everybody's winning. I, I, I think that Jordan's last point there is really important. We need to understand what the purpose of these regulations are in, the, in China versus the United States. In China, the concern I expect is much more about controlling the conduct of these companies and making sure that they're not growing too powerful and they're able to work for the government. Whereas that I hope isn't, Stuart, why you're interested in regulating these companies. And if it is, we, we need to have a much different talk <laughs> about American values. Um, uh, in China, innovation is in many ways a threat. It needs to be innovation in line with the party policies. So understanding the purposes of these regulations is really important. So I, well, I, to be I, fair I, to Stuart, Gus, his position is, Stuart, I'm going to give you a chance to back to defend this, but his position is, I don't like what they're doing to me as a conservative, just like liberals say, I don't like what they're doing to labor. So I'm going to hit them on antitrust, just like the Chinese Congress is saying, I don't like how, you know, name your name your your company your chinese company is, is behaving right alibaba right whatever right i don't like how their ceo is behaving so i'm gonna have i'm gonna reel them in use the antitrust laws Stuart. yep so I, I do think that antitrust laws are all about spurring competition and you have to ask who's that competition for i uh, and in some cases uh, and i think in the chinese case and maybe in this case maybe in the fcc case the competition is to ensure that people are abiding by and meeting the requirements that society has imposed and you know given a choice wow. between having decisions about governance made by the government 
and decisions made about governance by five big companies. I, I'd rather wow. have the government. I mean, Jack Ma and Mark Zuckerberg, same guy, right? That's what we're saying. I mean, what? what? I mean, this is – yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, 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 I am I am not impressed by the argument that democracy requires that we let Silicon Valley continue to shape what we're allowed to see and say. What about capitalism? I love capitalism. No, I know, but does capitalism require it? Does capitalism Capitalism allow... always requires... Su- it only works when it has competition, and it requires rules to make sure the competition continues as opposed to ending up all in one corner. Like the consumer welfare standard. I, you know, I, I, I usually... I Look, I, I was around when the Reaganites dismantled the old standard, and I was a big enthusiast for it because the the old system was profoundly politicized uh, and, and determinations of what was an antitrust problem were decisions about how much you liked a particular industry or company. Uh, and so I see all, the, I think, the risks of allowing a few companies to decide what we can say and see are more substantial and addressing it with Platform-focused remedies strikes me as a perfectly moderate approach to the problem. All right. Uh, The the hard question, Stuart, is do you prefer Senator Klobuchar or Hawley's five-year plan? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Okay, there we are. A truly lived up to the conservative catfight. Well, maybe not the conservative side of it, but it was certainly a catfight. Thank you, Jamil. That was a it was a pleasure. And Jordan, thank you for introducing the CCP to the argument, which is exactly what I was hoping you would talk about. And while we're at it, we we haven't dragged Nate into this, and let's pick something simple and non-controversial, like uh, the January 6th uh, investigative committee's subpoenas. Glenn, and we'll bring Glenn Greenwald to ensure that it's all kind of civil. We'll bring Glenn Re- Greenwald into the conversation. Nate, Glenn Greenwald has written that the January 6th committee, which is subpoenaing a bunch of records and is saying that they really have no limits on what they can uh, uh, a subpoena and that the Right to Financial Privacy Act doesn't apply to them. He thinks that's a gross miscarriage of justice and inconsistent with all of the anti-McCarthyite uh, decisions from the Supreme Court in the 50s. What's your view? Glenn Greenwald, the model of, of reason and objectivity, yes. <laughs> um, I think he overstates a lot of this. I mean, you know, it's a common tactic of Trumpers and and even some folks on the left like Greenwald to sort of attack the, the fundamental legitimacy of institutions and try to get people to discount everything that they do. And, and I think, you know, I think Boesberg's opinion in that case was pretty well reasoned on the legitimacy of this committee and its ability to to utilize its investigative authority. You know, I do think there's one parallel uh, or potential parallel between that case and the subpoenas that were issued to the technology companies, which is a bit of an interesting issue. And that is this question of whether the statutes that Congress passes actually apply to their own investigative authorities and whether it's the Right to Financial Privacy Act or the Stored Communications Act. Um, Especially when they you know. when they write a law that that applies to government subpoenas, right. uh, so they're having to say, well, when they define government, they said it's an agency or department, and we're not an agency, we're not a department, so doesn't apply to us. And I'm not sure that's completely persuasive. 
Yeah. And and I think, you know, the tech companies, for example, have long taken the position that the same restrictions apply in the context of Stored Communications Act. And in that case, the the implications are potentially more dramatic. In the right to financial privacy, it carries some procedural protections for the individual who's impacted by the request and things of that nature. But it doesn't prevent Congress from getting the information. No, because the, 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 the dirty little secret of the Right to Financial Privacy Act is you have no right to financial privacy, <laughs> and this just codifies it. But uh, exactly. it does set some procedural limits, which apparently the January 6th Committee uh, wouldn't tolerate. <laughs> right. But the interesting thing about the Stored Communications Act is for even by even if you just go by the statute and set Warshak and constitutional requirements aside, there are certain types of information that have to that can only be obtained by the government with a warrant. And that is something that, you know, by its own nature in the terms of the law, Congress cannot obtain. And, and is that so the nature of it, the debate between the, the committee and Silicon Valley? They've asked for a whole bunch of yeah, stuff. It's uh, hard to say, but, yeah. it, but it could be part of it, I think, because a number of things that are identified in those subpoenas do, do refer to user-generated content and social media postings and things like that that arguably would be covered by the Stored Communications Act. Now... At this point, a lot of that stuff probably pretty old, and so it may be beyond this the statutory warrant requirement, and so you know it's hard to to say. But I think it's possible that that's going to come up. Well, but, but I think it's. But does does Congress need a warrant for that stuff if Congress is getting it versus the executive branch? And let's say they gave immunity. Would well, they need a warrant? I, I mean, I think again by the terms of the the Stored Communications Act, if Congress is a governmental entity that is subject to the act itself, companies are barred from giving information to that governmental entity unless it meets one of the exceptions. The only and, and potential the exception the, the definition here, of government, the definition of government is, is pretty narrow. I, I, there are no foreign governments that meet that requirement. That's correct. But the content restrictions, the restrictions on disclosure of content actually exclude provision of information to anybody, including, you know, private persons beyond governmental entities. So I think it is likely that Congress, if it's subject to the Stored Communications Act at all, is subject to the bar on disclosure. And then the only exceptions to that would potentially be applicable here, I think, are cases where they have obtained a warrant if you're talking about communications that are less than 180 but, days old. But Nate, how does, how does Congress get a warrant? They don't, and so that's the question. Like, has Congress actually precluded themselves by passing the Stored Communications Act? Congress actually says that it, they take the same position that they did in, in this case with respect to the Right to Financial Privacy Act, which is they're not subject to the Stored Communications Act at all. That was all meant for the executive branch and their investigative authorities or, you know, or judicial subpoenas and the like. But when it comes to Congress, they're operating under a separate set of rules and they just have to issue a subpoena. Right. We, we don't. None of these laws apply to us. We just passed them. We don't have to live by them. Uh, right. Not, exactly. not the most appetizing argument, uh, although it might work here. It's especially difficult with stored communications, I think, because there's so yeah. few exceptions. And that's right. And I think, you know, the one other thing to just make sure we touch on briefly here that Glenn argues that I think is wrong is that there are essentially no protections and no judicial oversight over this process whatsoever. 
And, you know, I think the, this case certainly looks that way because the information had already been disclosed by the, the third party, the bank in this case, and, and he was trying to claw it back. And But I think, you know, in cases where they, they issue a subpoena to you for your information or they issue it to a third party holding your information and that party notifies you, you do have the ability to raise certain objections to that in advance. And I think those would likely not be thrown out on these kinds of grounds of speech and debate clause and things like that. And so so I think, you know, there's not surprisingly a little bit of, of hyperbole and advocacy in Glenn's piece, but people should but rest it, assured it, it, they're not is, is Congress really arguing that they can subpoena this stuff because their subpoenas are protected by the speech and debate clause? That, that's totally They're, they're saying that it? once they get the information, ah, yes. um, what then they, they can do with it. it is protected by it. Yeah, and the court mm-hmm. can't order them to, to do particular things or, or you know, refrain from using it for certain purposes, et cetera, et cetera. So I mean, I, that's I, almost certainly right, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. I think that's I, right. I, I, I will say, if you go back and read those... Uh, Supreme Court decisions from the 50s in which the court stands up for the First Amendment right of all these communists not to re- uh, respond to questions because of the obloquy they'll be uh, subjected to. Jamil, you're right. Commu- uh, uh, conservatives are being treated worse than communists uh, <laughs> in this context. <laughs> there it is. There it is. <laughs> okay, we're running long. Uh, let me... Uh, quickly move into, I don't know that there's anything to this. There's a story from Forbes that seems to be shocked that uh, WhatsApp at the instance of uh, DEA has been required to provide metadata about it. some of the people who probably are moving fentanyl and are in China. Is there anything about that story that sounded to you unusual from a legal the perspective of the author i guess i would say <laughs> yeah um, exactly he's, 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 no, he's shocked mean, to discover that the law is what it's been for 15 yeah. years i mean they're giving Imagine the that. to from date time of communications of these users the fact that it doesn't require a warrant based on probable cause is not surprising they're upset that the government didn't have to you know provide specific facts to demonstrate relevance. And and that's not surprising. You know, the one thing I think the I guess the other thing that people should keep in mind here is that, you know, even though these standards are admittedly relatively low, like the relevant standard, there are protections that are effectively triggered by having court oversight over these things, which is, you know, in this case, a government agent had to go in and certify that these records were relevant to an ongoing criminal investigation. And the initiation and conduct and conclusion of that investigation is subject to a bunch of policies and procedures within the Justice Department. And and if the government's flouting those things, in particular, this affidavit they file in court, there are pretty significant consequences to that. So, you know, these are not obligations that government officers take lightly and do provide, I think, meaningful protections, you know, above and beyond what you see on paper in this statute. But it looked like a pretty um, vanilla uh, yeah, that's what I thought. It was, it was it shock, shocked about nothing. Uh, it, yeah. uh, it, it's sort of the, the Seinfeld of uh, Forbes uh, WhatsApp exposés. Okay, two quick, we're going to have to try to do these quickly. Jordan, what's new in China's five-year digital development plan that we didn't already know. 
So we had the five-year digital development economy plan come out last week by the state council. It's had some interesting new uh, numbers. I think the most important thing to focus on when you see these five-year plans are the targets, not necessarily because that's what the Chinese government is going to be able to achieve, but rather this is sort of what is going to flow down the bureaucracy at every level of government, what people are pointing to. So we had some pretty interesting ones around gigabit internet, e-commerce, and other broad sort of digitization goals, both for the government and then the society at large. A few other interesting points to highlight was this lean into open source, which we've been seeing building for a long time now, the government's embrace of it. A few years ago, it was unclear whether or not the Chinese government would wrap its head around the potential um, upside that a number of open source, you know, and open source software and hardware, RISC-V included, could, could potentially bring to China, but the sort of embrace of it was something that stuck out to me. And another one was this leaning on SMEs as a potential vehicle for um, for more growth. And it's tricky if you're the Chinese government it, pushing forward technology-based small and medium-sized enterprises because they're less legible to the state than your sort of large tech firms and platforms. And, you know, if you're trying to like grow e-commerce or or roll out fiber to China, small firms are not going to be ones doing that work. So you're starting to see this interesting tension between all of the sort of anti-big anti platform efforts we talked about earlier in the podcast and this you know need for big companies to do a lot of the heavy lifting, which is going to get China to where it wants to be by 2025. So my theory on this is that, of course, the Chinese government knows that the big guys who can talk to them and uh, hire the Chinese equivalent of lobbyists and the like uh, uh, are going to have an advantage and they want to try to lean against that. And then down in the provinces, if you're trying to make, trying to turn your favorite company into a success and you want to justify giving it special benefits, you say, oh, well, it's an SME. That's why I'm giving it all those benefits. So I think that this is probably mostly just can't that'll turn out to be convenient can't for a few corrupt officials, but maybe I'm wrong. I'm with you. Okay. All right. And now last topic, merger guidelines. And we saw that uh, the administration threw out the vertical merger guidelines that had come out of, you know, it was a pretty bland document that came out of the Trump administration. And they threw them out. They're rewriting, as I understand it, both the vertical and the horizontal gu guidelines. Is that right, Kyle? Uh, yeah. So I'll give you the, the really quick download on this. A DOJ and FTC have issued a public inquiry, basically a request for comments for the next 60 days on rewriting the merger guidelines. And they're trying to do what Congress is trying to do, just focus only on the merger side. It's a pretty, pretty much their notice is a wish list of how can we be more aggressive against especially big tech um, and digital platforms. And the thing that I'd say about this is the merger guidelines don't have any force of law. These are guidelines that the agencies use when reviewing mergers. Courts have been somewhat deferential to them because of the process by which the agencies have developed them. And if the agencies are too overtly political in adopting any new guidelines, expect pandemonium 
when courts start to review the mergers because the judiciary isn't required to and won't really give much credence to guidelines that are transparent, transparently political, especially when they're being adopted or if they're adopted in the shadow of so much congressional attention uh, to these issues. Oh, and I, I have to put in a quick addition to the agenda. Pete Buttigieg should be demanding Stephen Dickinson's resignation from the FAA post-haste, since FCC FAA fighting was removed from our agenda today. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry about that. Uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you're worried that you're going to overshoot the, the uh, landing zone when your uh, plane lands because of 5G, uh, that worry's probably a little overdone. And the FAA's failure to actually turn it into an issue before they could turn it into a crisis is disappointing at best. And I think both the Trump and the Biden administration deserve a lot of uh, obloquy for that, for having this yep. show up at this point in the deployment of 5G. You're absolutely right. Okay, that concludes uh, our uh, delightful and lively uh, news roundup. And I'm... Uh, eager to get to the interview because I had a lot of fun with this book. It's uh, Law and Policy for the Quantum Age uh, and was written by uh, Chris Hofnagel and uh, Simpson Garfinkel. Uh, and let me start right out, Chris, by saying, you know, can you just introduce yourself and why you wrote this book? First, let me just say I'm delighted to be here, and it's really great to reconnect with you. Stuart, you've been such a generous mentor over the years, and even when I was a baby lawyer 20 years ago, you were always willing to talk to me, and I really appreciate it. And so I'm delighted to reconnect and to tell you that I wrote this book because I teach about law and technology at the University of California, Berkeley, and I'm interested in helping people understand what's coming down the, uh, the path five and 10 years from now, and I'm interested in helping people understand how we can rely on our history of technology regulation to understand what our options are and what we could possibly do about the new risks that come from technologies. Yeah, I, I look, I, I'm a, I've always been an enthusiast for trying to understand and think about and maybe even uh, intervene in the ordinary course of technological developments and what it will mean for us. And uh, sometimes I've gotten things right. Sometimes I've gotten things spectacularly wrong. We all did. You know, John Perry Barlow was not alone in thinking that uh, computers were going to liberate us. Uh, so this is an, an effort to do that for quantum technology. Uh, and uh, I know Simpson Garfinkel wanted to be here and I'll miss him because he's a delight. But why don't we start out with a two and a half minute explanation of why quantum theory is so weird and what that means for quantum technology. Quantum theory and the technologies we describe in this book are about the interactions of the smallest particles in the world. And at this level of physics, none of us has any experience. Our life doesn't follow the dictates of quantum physics. And instead, we live in this world where we only deal with large objects. So this is counterintuitive material because we have no direct experience. And the idea that particles at the smallest level are indeterminate in ways, that they can be entangled with each other and somehow interact over a distance, 
are just so foreign to anything we ever experience, even with the technologies we have today that seem magical. Yep. So the, the things that are magical here are things like what superposition and indeterminacy. Do we need those to, to, to understand those a little to understand how these various quantum technologies work? I've been practicing talking about this material for two years now, and I found that the less you talk about the underlying physics, the better the lawyers do. And in fact, <laughs> an early critique of the book was that it was basically a physics textbook. So we took all the material about superposition um, and- we stuck it in the back. And we stuck it in the back. And, and, and it's great back there. I, I did not read it all, I have to say, because I'm a lawyer. And so I was happy to talk about the policy stuff. But I think you, you may be right. I, it was, it's, everything about this book is really well done in the sense that it is casual in, a, in the best possible way. It, it's not forbidding. It covers so much and with such a sure-footed approach to both technology and history and policy that it makes it easy to understand. And even, you know, even the stuff on the technology, on the quantum mechanics is valuable and I'd, I'd recommend it to readers. But you're right, you probably don't need to talk about what the Heisenberg principle is and whether the cat that's in the box is dead or not. Although I do say, I think I have found it easier to think about quantum computing if you buy into this controversial view of quantum mechanics, the many worlds theory, which is that the things that, you know, the, the cat in the box is dead and it's alive. It's a, it's dead in one world and alive in another one. And when you open the box and look in and if, and see what it is, you're in that world, the world where it's dead or the world where it's alive, and the other world is going off someplace else. And if you start to think of it that way, it, it, it makes it easier to imagine that the cat is both dead and alive, or at least is held in this superposition of not quite um, determined to be dead or alive. And you can do that, I think, with quantum computing in the sense that the because the computer is holding, because the whatever quantum entity you're holding in a uh, superposition uh, state, it's holding all the possibilities in itself at that moment. And then you measure it to see which one is going to, which world you're going to end up in. And if you do it often enough, you'll get a feel for all the possible worlds that could come out of tweaking that particular particle. And, and so I find slightly useful uh, a, as a way of thinking about this, but I, I will not ask you to comment on my embrace of many worlds. Instead, why don't we just talk a little bit about what people think quantum can do uh, as a technology, and then I, I want to get into which of those technologies is most plausible as successes and uh, which ones we should be embracing, funding, and what the consequences will be. So let's just uh, talk about the four or five different ways in which quantum technology is starting to impinge on our world. The easiest place to start, and the real focus of our book, is on the potential of quantum sensing. Quantum sensing is already a mature technology in the view that devices like magnetic resonance imaging machines 
are in fact quantum sensors. So a big thesis of and, our and to, to, my, to, to, to understand what, what quantum sensing is, I guess I would say it's the fact that you can sense magnetic fields, electric fields, gravitational fields from a distance that we never imagined it, with a, a sufficient, suffi sufficiently sophisticated quantum tools. And this means that we can, well, with MRIs, we can measure some of the activity and some of the mass inside our bodies. And just as well from, computer, from satellites, we can sense whether that's a nuclear submarine at the bottom of the... And so potentially, I mean, it's great for our health to be able to do MRIs, but it's pretty scary if you're a nuclear subcaptain to think that anybody with a satellite and quantum sensing capability can find you. You are touching on one of the most strategically relevant points from the book, and that is the idea that many of the military devices that currently have stealth, maybe because they're a low observable, or maybe because they're a submarine, may become elucidated by quantum sensors. And some of those sensors could indeed be in space, but there are also applications that could be UAV mounted or just installed on a seawall. So you could imagine a set of sensors in the South China Sea that looks for electromagnetic disturbances that are characteristic with a submarine and use that to tell where a fleet is. And the erosion of that stealth could have strategic consequences that could be quite scary. And that's just one outcome of quantum sensing. It's important to know that it's not just an issue of remote sensing, of sensing from very far away, as in space distances. It's also a matter of resolution. The, the, the resolution and measuring electromagnetic fields, gravity, and time make other observations even more have even more impact. Um, so we could see a, an array of image intelligence. So if we imagine geoint and the like becoming much more resolute in, in, mm -hmm. in the next 20 years, much, much more than we would expect using classical techniques. So but both the focus, you know, you can get, get, find smaller things, you can look through roofs, you can look through the ground. I mean, there, there's already ground penetrating radar, but now you could do even better. And there were some, I think you described the Chinese flying a UAV or a helicopter over a field and identifying uh, uh, big metal balls that had been buried in the field. And that that capability is close to here, right? So that's demonstrated in the literature companies. So, so on one hand, there's these fantastic military applications that many of us would want, like landmine detection. Wouldn't it be nice to sweep yep. for, for mines? But there are companies in the mining and extraction industries that are investing in those same experiments to find underground minerals. So do we of course. foresee a world where many, many more holes are dug? And maybe those holes are more precise. Well, but maybe maybe only holes where you know there's something down there, which is different from some of the holes they're they're digging now. But yeah, I think you're right. But surely we aren't going to say we don't want this technology because it would enable us to extract things that it's economic to extract. That would be that would be like uh, you know closing down a pipeline because we're afraid people will burn the gas. Kind of a little bit. Uh, orthogonal to your real problem. The You also uh, suggested that it might be possible to use that same UAV flying over a crowd to identify every weapon 
being carried in the crowd. Well, this is where we're speculating about where the technology could go. Already at the University of California, Berkeley, there is a faculty member who has mounted a gravimeter on a UAV and can measure very small differences in gravity. And of course, they use it for geological survey. But once you have an idea of what a weapon signature would look like, perhaps you could use that same device to detect bomb-making material or other heavy material based on its size and composition. So we have to start thinking about, you know, just as the MRI can see through your skin and see bodies inside your body, we have to think about this technology seeing through our walls and through our roof. And this, it's a bit surprising, but we might have, the average home might have less shielding in their roof than in their wall. So it's not a totally crazy application. So let me ask this, how hard would it be to, to build fake subs? and put them at the bottom of the ocean. Uh, If all you needed was something roughly the same size, then you could do it. If it has to have a power plant, a nuclear power plant, uh, to to fool the uh, head sensors, uh, that's not going to work. So decoys are going to get harder in a quantum sensing world. Would that work? I think it depends on whether the sensor is electromagnetic or gravitational, because the density would matter. In the models I've seen, the, the modeling of the threat, let, let's say it's a, a, a submarine, is based on the, the, the actual arrangement of devices within a submarine. Uh, so so you, you're, 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 it would have to be a really good decoy and probably at that point uh, almost as expensive as a real sub. So we got to think about other countermeasures. What would those other countermeasures be? Noise, heat the things that destroy quantum states, the things that interfere with the coherence of a quantum state would be the types of countermeasures that I assume would emerge. So it's chaff and fuzzing. It's basically, it is trying to destroy the signal. And that may mean you'll have to do active measures. You can't do it passively, but that makes a lot of sense. On the other hand, my memory is you, you said, you know, the part of the value of this is that if you have photons that are entangled, you can tell whether the ones that are coming at you are the photons you sent out or just random noise. So one of the modeled uses out there are radar systems that authenticate the data, if you will, in the form of photons that come back to the array. So you would be able to deal with some of the current jamming um, approaches, the current spoofing approaches that occur in traditional radar. This is actually one of the most exciting aspects of quantum sensing for um, military applications is the extent to which they will be more resistant to electronic warfare. So the the big money right now are making these devices that are about the size of my fist that would go into vehicles and would not be GPS dependent. And therefore, we wouldn't have to worry as much as we wouldn't have to worry about that type of jamming. We'd have to worry about other types of jamming, but we could be less uh, uh, reliant on GPS and we wouldn't have to use second best alternatives like inertial navigation. But with the, but actually quantum sensing makes inertial navigation a lot more plausible. Okay. So that's, that, that says to me, this is a revolutionary kind of small revolution but one that you know, could cost us our entire nuclear uh, triad uh, but it is it, it's relatively easy to see that it's important 
it's going to be developed for commercial reasons as well as for military reasons. We're never going to have complete control over it uh, and probably don't want to. We need to just get in front of it somehow. Let's talk about a couple of the other technologies. The one that I find most interesting and that has gotten all of the attention recently is quantum computing. And you spent a lot of time on quantum computing. The quantum computing is sort of different. It, it, it is kind of, let's put together a bunch of things in a quantum state that might only last seconds and manipulate them so that when they give us an answer, they give us a sense of all the possible answers to this solution, to this problem there might be. And, and so certain kinds of situations where there's lots and lots of interaction between probable outcomes are hard using current digital computers to uh, get an answer to. And so the thought is, well, maybe we can use quantum computing to at least deal with those sorts of problems. That, am I being fair to the technology? I think it's fair to say, and this is the reason why quantum supremacy as a term doesn't make much sense, quantum computers will be able to fit certain problems better. Just as you know, there's a saw for cutting down a tree and there's a saw for cutting metal, quantum computers will fit certain problems and deal with those in a faster way than classical computer. And in some cases, it will, be, it will deal with those problems in ways that classical computers could never solve. And, and that's, what, that's among the exciting things out there. But just as in, in your introduction, you spoke about the many world theories, and it's worth revisiting that because these devices are exquisitely sensitive. And those many worlds, if you will, collapse if they interact with the outside environment at all. So literally cosmic right. radiation can cause the device to lose its data and lose its ability to, to process. So quantum computing is at the pinnacle of difficulty when it comes to quantum technologies. And this is one of the reasons why we so emphasize the importance of sensing. We think that it, it's easier to do, it's proven, getting to quantum computing, a, 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 a computer that would resemble anything like what you're sitting in front of right now is... Um, some time away. I know people are bragging. The, the latest brag was, well, we kept these particles uh, superimposed for 30 seconds. And that was a big, big deal uh, that allowed, I think they were Australian and Dutch researchers, maybe some Japanese to say, we've solved the, the error correction problem. Uh, uh, did they? So a, a couple things to note about that. You're right to be skeptical. It is on one hand a breakthrough, but on the other hand, if you do a Google search for quantum breakthroughs, you'll find thousands of them. Um, yes. Many more breakthroughs have to occur. And the error correction they achieved was in a one and two bit device. So this would be okay. like, it, 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 it's hard to under, even explain what the equivalent would be. It would be like a 1930s computer level of size. This is, you know, this is a, a, a one qubit device that has very right. high fidelity. The 1930s is, computer with, with five punch cards. <laughs> so, and as you know, as you add more and more infrastructure, it becomes more chaotic, harder to measure, and that error rate is going to tank as more qubits are added to the system. So there's lots of talk and has been for 15, 20 years 
about using, about how factoring large numbers because of all the contingencies say, is something that quantum computers ought to be good at, or let, at least extraordinarily better at than current computers. And because factoring is at the heart of the modern cryptographic uh, infrastructure that creates security on the internet, and which NSA, for a variety of reasons, is always eager to find a way around, uh, there's been a lot of enthusiasm and a little bit of fear out of what quantum computing could do to cryptography and cryptanalysis and whether it might essentially negate all the security we have and that maybe it's time for everybody to start, all governments, to start saving up any interesting communications in the hopes that quantum computing in five or 10 years will allow them to break it. You're remarkably skeptical about that. Yeah, we do think that quantum cryptanalysis is a threat, but a distant one. And there are technical, economic, and even strategic reasons for it to be far off. For one, even if one had a performant quantum computer, one many, many, many times the size of those that exist, it still requires a per-key cryptanalysis. And so as you know, with modern crypto systems, you can have a key per message, you can have remarkable uh, approaches to impose costs on attackers. The current estimate... You can, you can just add another bit every, you know, to your key size every year. And that's going to dramatic, that's going to square the effort that, that has to go into getting access to that. A and even if quantum computers enable you to square or, or more your capability, I don't see how you keep up with the ability of regular computers just to, to, to add a few bits and say, okay, this is going to take you three microseconds longer to encrypt than it did last year. So it's much easier to encrypt, much easier to use larger keys. The National Academies estimates that a 2,000-bit RSA key, standard key, um, would be yep. cracked in three and a half hours on a large quantum computer, something that doesn't currently exist, and that the National Academies predicts will not exist in the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. That's three and a half hours per key. So as you know, we got to start thinking about key value and what secrets are really worth protecting, who needs to invest what in, in protecting those. And there's more and more options available to impose costs on the attacker, but also to change to algorithms that are more quantum resistant. But Stuart, I'd love to hear what you think about key value analysis. If I have important secrets today and I'm worried about quantum computing, how would you how do you think about key value and the need how do you decide how to protect what yeah so, so I, I i agree that uh, look uh, how do you decide which of your gmail messages to keep you don't <laughs> you keep them all because it's 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 just not worth it to try to sort through them and decide which ones to keep that's the problem the biggest problem and so i i think the idea of trying to make that fine-tuned determination is daunting even if you know everything that's in it imagine how daunting it is if you don't and you're just the interceptor and you're saying i think this stuff is it's going to be good uh, especially as people are moving to forward secrecy uh, and knowing that you know a, there's a different key for every message or at least every session uh, a, and it's hard and it can be 
doubled, which, you know, it, in, not infinitely, but massively increases the difficulty of breaking it. Uh, and, and so I, I think the answer here is key length. Is you, you, just, you just increase key length, especially we haven't had a lot of key length increases in the last 10 or 15 years, even as computers have gotten faster. Uh, you can do that for a very long time to, to protect your data. That's kind of my sense about where we are. Maybe I'm wrong, but nobody should be using the same key over and over again for 20 years. That is dangerous. But apart from that, I think just following key increases, AES is already going up uh, uh, to 256 for a lot of people. It, you know, AES-128, you could imagine breaking with a quantum computer that doesn't exist and may never exist, but which you can imagine. You can't imagine breaking AES-256. So I was completely persuaded and I was reminded that physicists are, by and large, indirect government employees wherever they are. And they are just like any government lobby. They're good at figuring out how to get money out of government. And I can't help thinking that the decision to focus on how factoring of large numbers could be done with uh, quantum computing might have been an effort to say to NSA, you need to put a billion dollars into our quantum computing boondoggle. And it may have worked. Certainly it's gotten a lot of attention, uh, not just in the US, but elsewhere. In fact, I'm gonna argue that many of the things that relate to cryptography I, I, that are proposed for quantum technology fall into that category of things you say, you know, that sounds like a great way to get money for government, but it doesn't sound like it's really going to change much on the ground. So quantum key distribution, the idea that, well, you've got the, you, you, you have these two entangled photons and one of them goes one place and one of them I keep. And when the, when they change, they change together. And that enables me to ensure that uh, I have communicated only to the person I want to communicate with and I can give them a key and nobody can intercept it because that'll, it'll become immediately obvious to both parties that there's noise in the system. You know, that's all true and you could use it. And the Chinese are spending enormous amounts of money to demonstrate that they, they're doing quantum key distribution. But there are so many easier ways to do key distribution than that. And knowing that somebody has intercepted your key is a nice thing to do, obviously, but there are so many better ways to get people's keys than that, uh, that I, you know, there's not a lot of effort going into now, as far as I'm decrypting the key exchange protocols that uh, people are using. And so you could keep using those for a very long time. Uh, and investing in satellites doing key distribution strikes me as you know the chinese have learned from american physicists not only physics but also how to how to uh, push their government's buttons there's more money in research in quantum technologies today than there are people to do it and when i speak with program officers they say that they are getting applications for uh, research projects where it's just the standard research project but the investigator has put quantum in it so yeah, there's some opportunism out there, but it is the case that we are in a worldwide race to implement these technologies, to train people. So even if QKD is not so useful, as I think you rightly assess, it does have the side effect of training thousands of people in the technology. 
And maybe that positions them for more important forms of quantum technology. Yeah. I'll or or, or they, they'll go to Wall Street and become uh, quants instead of quantum physicists. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, in the U.S., that's fine. People, we train people at Berkeley and others who go off to the private sector and make a killing, and that's great. They don't all have to become research scientists. That's totally fine. But I will note that when you look at the literature out there, there's a lot of state of the science advances that are occurring elsewhere in the world. They're not in the United States. The, the one you, you gave an example of comes from Australia, and it's part of a trio of developments coming out of Japan, Australia, and the Netherlands. So we have to think as a country mm-hmm. of how we are going to compete, because other countries so see I, I, vulnerability I, I, Yeah. I, I, I do think that everybody is governments in particular, deluded by the the world we live in now. The Europeans are spending a bunch of money on this so that they can thumb their nose at the National Security Agency. Uh, and so a lot of their stuff is aimed at defeating some hypothetical NSA intercept capability. And it's mostly wrongheaded, I think, uh, and a waste of their money. And we shouldn't follow them down that particular rat hole. And the Chinese with the key distribution, probably the same thing. The The whole cryptanalysis thing is again aimed at repeating what people see as successes that the U.S. has had. Uh, I think there is something exciting, and you've, uh, I'm not sure that I'm right about this, so I'll try it out on you. The exciting stuff that you talk about is what Feynman first proposed this as. He said, we should have a quantum computer in order to understand quantum mechanics better. And I'm going to propose uh, this. There are biological processes today that use quantum mechanics in ways we do do not understand. They, you know, alfalfa uses it to make nitrogen and fix it in the soil, and we have to have them do that. It's extraordinarily important capability. And we just plant alfalfa because that's the only way we know how to do it. But even more important, all the plants on the uh, planet are taking all that excess CO2 that we uh, generate now and turning it into oxygen and plant matter a, and fixing the uh, the CO2 in a way that it's not in the atmosphere. And they're using, that photosynthesis uses quantum mechanics. And the idea of using quantum computers to fully understand how that works and to ask the question, can we build machines that will do those two things is really exciting. That's absolutely it. That is the major upside of quantum computing. And that's what I want to see. The scientific discovery could be fantastic. I mean, think about the deep sea creatures that engage in photosynthesis. If we can understand the efficiencies that they have developed through evolution, if we could implement those efficiencies in solar panels, in battery technology, we could be living in a completely different world. The flip side of that is that it could be a world where all sorts of synthetic chemistry takes off for purposes that we do not, or that we have reservations about, let's put it that way, such as weapons development and so on. So we could imagine highly optimized solar panels. We could imagine optimized nitrogen fixation but we could also imagine optimized nitrogen weapons. 
we, yep. we'd have different sure. feelings about but look it, 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 technology can always do that the it, it, looking at the exciting prospects uh, it, it is uh, this is a place where the most obvious capabilities are not immediately disastrous and that's probably all you can hope for in futurology i i the whole your this is something i learned from the book everything i learned in chemistry about bonds is wrong there are no bonds it's just quantum effects and we are using bonds to approximate quantum effects and that's crazy we should be actually measuring and analyzing the quantum effects from chemical reactions but we don't know how to do it and and so again the idea of using quantum computers for something that is essentially and at its core quantum it, it is it makes sense, at least to a lawyer technologist. Uh, and uh, that it, it, we should probably be putting more effort into just because it it makes sense that we ought to be able to make real progress there in ways that, you know, trying to thumb your nose at NSA just is never going to hold a candle to. Yeah. And, and frankly, I don't think there's that much money in thumbing your nose at the NSA. I think the money <laughs> to be made is in figuring out photosynthesis and figuring out drug development and exactly the narrative you painted there. And that's why we're in a different world than, let's say, the Manhattan Project or many of the projects of the 20th century. We have private sector companies that could make the breakthrough, that could make the quantum, the world-changing quantum computers, and they're going to want to make billions of dollars, and they're not going to make that those billions of dollars through crypt cryptanalysis. They're going to make it through drug right, discovery so, and, yep, um, yep. and other pro-social, frankly, uh, very pro-social business development. And so, you know, bless our marketplace that those are the incentives we want. We want those incentives and we want to skew away from some of the other incentives. Yeah, I, this is a, just a lesson for technology policy people everywhere. The, the inclination is to apply mo the models that we already are familiar with and assume that that's where fu the future progress will be made. So everybody assumed in the 1950s, oh my God, we've gone from Kitty Hawk to supersonic in 50 years. Uh, you know, God knows what could happen by the, the year 2000. And the answer is nothing. Uh, <laughs> well, okay, we had rockets, we went to the moon, but that was a, that was a stunt. Only now are, are we starting to have real commercial rocketry. And so People who thought that the future was going faster were just wrong by 1955. And people who think that uh, more computing is going to be the future may have completely missed the, the boat. And certainly thinking that programmable computers that just do faster and better, what we uh, it, that just extend Moore's Law another 30 years, I, that, that's probably not right. You're, you're probably better off looking for a slightly different uh, approach. And I will, let's dispose while we can of the last technology that you talk about, which is quantum networking, which is the idea that you can send these quantum signals and entangled photons down the line to, to nodes and that that won't be possible to get the metadata or to to see into the operations of the little computers that are at the end, their end, and that this will enable a quantum internet. You point out that uh, you got to have repeaters for photons every twenty miles or so, so that uh, and the the repeaters are going to be compromisable. I uh, it's the presumed advantages of quantum networking from a security point of view are 
preposterous. Uh, and the advantages other than security are unknowable. So again, quantum networking seems like to me like uh, just a way to extract money from credulous government bureaucrats. I could be wrong. There's some really exciting stuff. You have really stretched my mind, and I recommend highly the, the book to others. It is law and policy for the quantum age. It is eminently approachable. It is spot on in every paragraph, has an insight that uh, is, I know, Chris, in your case and in Simpson's case, hard won. It's part of your lived experience. And it is a great taking of all that and jumping off to the future, really a landmark in future technology policy making. So you should be really proud of it. And I recommend it to our listeners wholeheartedly. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here today. All right. Thanks to Chris Hoopnagel. Thanks also to Gus Jordan, Nate, and Jamil for the extraordinary food fight that we engaged in earlier in the day. If you've got questions, comments on this, send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Leave us a rating if you feel like it. Our thanks to Weissman Sound Design for the music. This has been episode 391 of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Mm-hmm.